From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. From the Civil War to the Dust Bowl, from baseball to jazz, Ken Burns' documentaries have covered a range of critical events in American history and culture. And now... She's long gone and now I'm lonesome blue. Country music is getting the Ken Burns treatment. He and longtime collaborators and producers Dayton Duncan and Julie Dunphy spent eight years researching and making an eight-part, 16-hour film documentary which premieres on PBS this Sunday, September 15th. You're listening to Hank Williams' Long Gone Lonesome Blues as we turn to my earlier conversation with Dayton Duncan, producer and writer for the series. The series shows that country music rose from the bottom up, beginning at a humble recording studio. We've talked on this show about that studio and the dispute over whether to preserve or demolish the building at 152 Nassau where the first country hit was made. Not in Nashville, nor Bristol, but... Well, we begin our narrative uh, actually in Atlanta when uh, in 1923 when a producing pioneer by the name of Ralph Peer came to Atlanta uh, looking to record what was then called race records, that is black music. Uh, but while he was there, he learned that there was this guy on the radio, WSB, named Fiddlin' John Carson, and was persuaded, well, you ought to record him, too. And much to his surprise, found a ready market to buy those um, records, and that helps get this thing started. I'd been mad a long time ago, never had been uh, And then we go back and trace the roots, because for centuries, really, Um, What became known as country music uh, rose up from the bottom up, as he said, from hymns, from ballads that have been brought over from the British Isles, black music, uh, the blues, the banjo, which is an instrument that came from Africa, from work songs, from minstrel shows. And all these things had been passed really from person to person, family to family. And in 1923 in Atlanta, uh, it started to take its next step in a way to reach more people and affect the culture more broadly. And that was through the brand new technology of radio and the older technology of recording. But up until the 1920s, this kind of music was not really recorded because it was viewed as it has been for uh, many years, uh, sort of looked down upon as sort of a lesser form of art. We think it's a uniquely American form of art and an important one, and that's what our film is all about. Well, among those recorded by Ralph Peer, Jimmy Rogers, known to many as the father of country music. Let's hear a little bit of his song, Blue Yodel. Something we associate with country music, that yodel. Where did he come up with his sound? Well, Jimmy Rogers, like all great artists, uh, drew from everything around him. He absorbed everything. He was was a vagabond. He uh, worked on the railroads when he was a kid, uh, and he sopped up the music of the predominantly African-American road crews uh, working around him. He was a water boy for them. Um, he soaked up the uh, the rest of the music, uh, you know, sur- surrounding him. And uh, back in the 1840s, I think it was, a um, America was taken by storm by some Tyrolean yodeling uh, groups that went through the country. And Jimmy Rogers made that his trademark. He was the blue yodeler. Uh, and that tells you two things. The yodel, which comes from... Uh, Uh, Austria, but uh, the blue is the thing that came from African-American music, and it was his trademark. 
wife said uh, he yodeled around the house all the time. Uh, everything when he spoke, he, he would throw a yodel in. And uh, I don't think there's any song that he recorded, and he recorded a lot in his short life that didn't have a yodel in there at one point or another. And you said blues was being recorded at this time. Ma Rainey, Blind Willie McTell, both from Georgia. Now look at him, mama, let me tell you this. Lead Belly, Skip James, all for the same record companies that these early hillbilly, as they were called, records. So how was country differentiated since it drew from all of these traditions? Well, you know, part of it is um, part of it is actually just marketing. Ralph Peer was a genius. He had already made a name for himself by seeing a niche in the recording market for all the immigrant uh, communities. So he was producing records in Lithuanian and uh, German and Russian and Italian. Uh, And he also, in essence, discovered that there was a a market in African-American communities for someone to record blues music. And that's why he came to Atlanta uh, originally in 1923 to record more of what was then called, quote, race music. And he came across Fiddlin' John Carson, and he was playing old-time fiddle tunes and was persuaded to record it. It turned out to be a hit. And so he started recording more of that kind of music. And for lack of a better term, uh, it, it was called hillbilly music for a long, long time before it eventually started to become, be called uh, country western and then uh, country music. And as Jimmy Rogers, uh, a rambling type of guy, another uh, who peer recorded in 1927, he also recorded that year uh, the Carter family from Virginia, and they represented sort of a different style of country music. Him, you know, based more on him, songs about mother, old ballads, and we like to think of it as there's a Saturday night and a Sunday morning in country music. Saturday night, you know, you go out howling at the moon, uh, you ramble, you go in the jailhouse now, as Jimmy Rogers uh, sang. That's what he was that side of the coin, and that other great act of the 20s, the Carter family, were the Sunday morning, where you go um, and uh, pay your penance for what you did on Saturday night. (laughs) Dayton Duncan is with us. He's one of the producers and the writer for the upcoming Ken Burns documentary about country music. Let's hear, Can the Circle Be Unbroken by the Carter Family? I was standing by the window on one cold and cloudy day. Can the Circle Be Unbroken by the Carter Family, one of those recorded by Ralph Peer in the 1920s. Do I have that right? That's right, 27. So this is arguably their most famous song. What is that song connecting to that made it a hit? Well, I think you you put your finger on it. It it connects to everything. Actually, it had been a hymn that had been written in 1907. And in the 1920s, an African-American minister reworked it a little bit. A.P. Carter, who was credited as the songwriter for the Carter family, and a lot of the things he got was borrowed from existing songs, but he reworked it some more to have it more of the story. It is, on the one hand, a very sad story. I mean, what is sadder than 
you're standing by the window on a cold and cloudy day and you saw the hearse come rolling for to carry my mother away. Your mom's died. Mm. And it has all that sadness and that grief. And yet the chorus, you know, will the circle be unbroken by and by, Lord, by and by. There's a better world awaiting in the sky, Lord, in the sky. So it has this great hope as well. And uh, that song uh, reverberated uh, to everyone who, who heard it. It's both sad and mournful, and yet it had, uh, offers a promise of reunification. And I think that's what country music at its best is an exploration of things that are universal of the human experience and human emotions. And there's nothing more universal and more elemental than the death of someone you love. So A.P. Carter was one of those early song catchers like Alan Lomax, like uh, Ralph Peer, who would go travel around for inspiration and recording songs. And despite the racism of the Jim Crow South, he traveled with a black friend named Leslie Riddle. So, so we're getting this picture of the mix of black and white uh, differently maybe than we imagined it. And, of course, a little further west, there was Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys. Here's musician and composer Wynton Marsalis from the documentary comparing that band to swing. The, the solo is like a jazz solo on top of it. The organization is like a jump band. It was 1930s kind of jazz swing band. You have some type of swing rhythm. Then you can have somebody soloing on that form. I mean, it's, it's what... It's our, it's our way. Louis Armstrong on records would always say, oh, play that thing, Mr. Johnny St. Cyr. And Louis Armstrong didn't invent it, but it's part of a kind of Southern tradition of a self, this is so-and-so playing this instrument. But you think that's too and Bob Wills was definitely like that, a showman. So this Bob Wills out of Texas, imitating Louis Armstrong, Mamie right. Smith, innovating, also an innovator in the genre. He introduced drums to hillbilly music, encouraged his steel guitar player to use an amplifier, and, and using these little, aha, you know, he was breaking the rules. The record company didn't want that. What is the place of that kind of busting through in country music? Well, that's what art is. This is an art form created by artists. And what do they do? They always try to push the boundaries. They always try to reach across what are arbitrary boundaries that, you know, people might construct or labels might construct or culture might construct. And what we learned in, in doing this uh, film is how omnipresent that was. Uh, country music has a very voracious appetite, and it reaches across and draws from other art forms, musical art forms. So Bob Wills takes the swing era, and he likes that music. He, too, grew up interacting with African-American kids. He played with a band in New Mexico with Hispanic uh, musicians, and San Antonio Rose's great song sort of has some influence of that. So they're absorbing these things and trying to create something a little different. And uh, time and time again, um, over the course of the 20th century, which is what we follow in our film, you see those things happening. And you also see how you know other genres of music try to 
uh, absorbed country music. Ray Charles, who, uh, though he grew up in Florida, was born in, here in Georgia, mm-hmm. is another great example. It didn't just go one way of white uh, musicians borrowing things from African-American ones. When Ray Charles, who was a gigantic force in rhythm and blues, when he was finally given his first chance to select what music he wanted to play on an album, what did he choose? He came out with an album called Modern Sounds in Country and Western Music. He sang Hank Williams songs. He sang a great Don Gibson song, I Can't Stop Loving You. It's useless to say So I'll just live my life But he brought to it his sensibility and he created a, a tremendous album. Willie Nelson said that in doing that he thought Ray Charles uh, did more for country music than any single artist. Vince Gill on our, in our film talks about it as well that he was demonstrating, Ray Charles was, how soulful country music actually is and a lot of times in the you mentioned in the Jim Crow South a lot of times where the culture is trying and the society is trying to separate people what music is doing all the time is bringing us together and showing us that those kind of strictures and those kind of uh, fences really shouldn't exist Uh, music is the art of the invisible and it knows no boundaries, and uh, art knows no boundaries, and uh, country music is, I think, one of the prime examples of that. George's own Ray Charles bringing it all together there with I Can't Stop Loving You. We're going to take a quick break and be back with Dayton Duncan. He's one of the producers and the writer of the upcoming Ken Burns documentary series about country music. Stay with us for some of the unexpected voices of this quintessentially American art form. This is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Whenever I chance to meet some old friends on the street, they wonder how... We're listening to Charlie Pride with Kiss and Angel Good Morning as we continue our conversation about country music. It premieres on GBB this Sunday, September 15th. Dayton Duncan is my guest. He's a longtime collaborator with Burns and one of the producers as well as writer for the series. We heard about Ray Charles and the soulful contribution he brought to country music just before the break. But Charlie Pride was one of very few African-Americans to be successful in the genre. I asked Duncan how Charlie Pride got his start. He was uh, born in a sharecropper's family in the Mississippi Delta and dreamed big dreams uh, of doing something other than picking cotton. He saw Jackie Robinson break the color barrier in baseball and thought, well, maybe that's my way out. And he became a very good baseball player, ultimately didn't uh, make it in the, the big leagues. But while he was doing that, he also had grown up listening to the Grand Ole Opry on the radio. He loved Hank Williams songs and um, two Opry stars uh, visiting Helena, Montana, of all places, heard him and said, man, what a voice this guy's got. And he does have a great voice. Lover like the devil when you get back home. 
uh, and they encouraged him to come to Nashville, where he finally broke through and recorded a number of great songs. At a time, 1960s, when it was the record producers, when they first released the records, uh, didn't make note of the fact that he was an African-American. Uh, once people got used to his voice, then that color barrier broke. Until he was on a showcase in Detroit, I guess it's 1966. We've got the, a little clip from your documentary, The Disc Jockey, Ralph Emery and Charlie Pride are telling the story. Emery originally was there. He introduces them. The audience is going wild. And then Charlie Pride walks onto stage. Well, this is exactly the way it went. Yay! It stopped. He could drop a pen. Ladies and gentlemen, I said, ladies and gentlemen, I realize it's kind of unique me coming out here on a country music show wearing this permanent tan. The minute I said that, a big applause. So I guess they said, well, let's sit back and see what he got to offer. So Charlie Pride did win him over in the end. But do you think, given the African-American roots that we talked about of country music, was that ever acknowledged in country music in an open way? Uh, not really. I mean, I I, I think that uh, there was a, one of the earliest stars on the um, Grand Ole Opry was an African-American, the harmonica wizard, uh, D. Ford Bailey, who thrilled audiences. He could he had a song called The Pan-American in which he could, it sounded like a train was coming through your house and you know, picking up speed. And then Charlie Pride was really the, the next one. So what we try to show is that while society and culture has tried and Winton Marsalis, who uh, appears uh, occasionally in our film, the great jazz musician and more or less the main talking head, if you want to call it that, in the jazz series, points out that you know the, our DNA cries out for uh, inclusion and spreading and tribalism tries to separate it. Uh, but music is a great antidote to that. And so while there haven't been that many prominent African-American country stars, that's more a comment, I think, on us as a society than it is on the music itself. And I think that's the other thing that we try to get across in our series. Listen to the music. There is a Charlie Parker, the great bebop artist, jazz bebop artist. Was uh, in a bar in uh, New York City with uh, you know his fellow musicians, his jazz musicians, and he went over the jukebox and he kept putting the nickels in to play country songs. And they said, Charlie, what the heck? I mean, why are you listening to that? And he said, It's the stories. Mm. Listen to the stories. And I think that's uh, when it, where country music really is at its best, is telling those stories. Yeah, and one of those great storytellers, Loretta Lynn. Fantastic. She's uh, the best. She's the best. But it's also interesting that when Charlie Pride won the Country Music Association Award for Male Vocalist of the Year, he did that two years in a row, she presented the award, and she actually hugged him and kissed him on stage. So is there a distinction here between, you know, what the audience will accept and what his peers thought of him? You know, he was well-liked. He became great friends with Farron Young, who um, was um, 
sort of an unlikely person, let me put it that way, that would become the best friend of a, of a, of a black man. But they formed this bond through their music, and Farron Young stood up for him when some radio executives learned that this guy that they were playing on the radio was black. One of the DJs at a convention told Farron, said, well, now that we've learned that, we're, gonna, we're, we're not playing his records anymore. And uh, Farron set him straight and said, if you just go back and tell those people they take Charlie's records off, they got to take mine off, too. Mm. Hello, Wendy. Hello. Well, I see that you're still here. And uh, they became great friends. Loretta Lynn, who is a great songwriter in her own right, and at that same time that Charlie was coming out, she was writing songs like Don't Come Home A-Drinkin' With Lovin' On Your Mind, a, a great feminist tract, if you think of it, you know, if you really start to think about it, though she would not have called herself a feminist, but she was uh, writing songs that, as some people point out in her film, nobody was addressing issues of spousal abuse or, or you know, alcoholism in a, in a family, but she was. And she was always this unfiltered, straight-talking, great songwriter. And when they had told her, now listen, if Charlie Pride wins it, just you step back from the podium. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a, a comment on her and a comment on a lot of things. But she hugged him and she said, you, you can't let somebody tell you where to stand and where not to. At least I can't. Um, and that's Loretta, deep down Loretta. She also came up against country music establishment, let's put it that way. She wrote her song about taking the pill. I'm tearing down your brooder house, cause now I've got the pill. And the country music stations didn't want to play it. The record company held it back for a couple of years. This is right when women's lib is going on. Was country music providing an avenue for empowered women? We don't necessarily think of that. Our series is just crammed with some incredibly strong women. I mean, you think going back to the start, the Carter family was two women and a guy. And those two women, Sarah had the great voice, and Maybelle Carter, uh, her styling on the on the guitar called the Carter Scratch, is credited as one of the great influential guitar styles in American music. Uh, Rose Maddox was just this firecracker of a singer and force of nature. Kitty Wells sang a song when there was a popular song called uh, The Wild Side of Life that a man complaining that his wife, he didn't didn't know that God made honky-tonk angels. And she came out with the song, It Wasn't God Who Made Honky-Tonk Angels. And the point of the song was, too many married men think they are still single. Too many times married men think they're still single. That has led you know, many a good girl good to girl go Good girl to go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, she's saying it right out there. Patsy Cline, my goodness. You know, she could swear like a sailor and uh, called everybody hoss and uh, wouldn't let promoters uh, cheat her band. Yet she had this uh, overpowering voice. Crazy, I'm crazy for feeling so lonely. And a great heart put her broad embrace around little Brenda Lee out on tour and protected her and 
They became good friends, and then there's Loretta and Dolly Parton and Reba McIntyre, and uh, you know, you go on and on. There's a there's a long list. Well, let's hear a little bit of Dolly Parton. This was Jolene. Jolene, 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 Jolene. I'm begging of you, please don't take my man. Jolene, 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 Jolene. And it just has that heartbreaking line, please don't take him just because you can. Unbelievable. What, what is she tapping into that hits us? Uh, she, again, when it's at its best, country music is just, it penetrates your heart with these elemental emotions. As uh, Holly Williams, the granddaughter of the great Hank Williams and the daughter of Hank Williams Jr. says in, during that segment, that is like Hank Williams too. You take the most simple words, the most simple emotions, and you turn it into something that just sticks with you. And uh Dolly's got a whole bunch of those kind of songs, and uh, country music is just full of them as well. Dolly also crosses over to pop. Other pop culture boundaries are just obliterated. She's in films. There's Dollywood, her theme park. Wrote songs for other musicians and still a, a major force. And there, there was a Grammy tribute to her this year. Why do you think she's endured? Why, why do you think her story speaks to the endurance of country? Well, I think you begin with any artist who endures, it's because they're, they're just really good at what they do. And I think that uh, people, you know, get a little bit, um, not distracted, but um, they focus on the hair and, uh, and her personality, which is a force in itself, and overlook of what a tremendous songwriter she actually is. And she's got a great voice, too, and a great talent uh, to present it, but... As they say in Nashville, it all begins with a song. Somebody's got to write something. And if it's really good, if it touches on those things, and if you match it with an artist, sometimes the person who wrote it in the first place, you get that marriage of those things, and you get something that uh, that will last forever. And uh, she's got a share of those for sure. That's Dayton Duncan. He is the writer and one of the producers in Ken Burns' new documentary, Country Music. We talked just a minute ago about the strong women of country, but let's go back to that, the rambling fellow, you know, the kind of outlaw. And those images evolve, too. You have your Hank Williams, Johnny Cash, Dwight Yoakam, guys who gained popularity for, for telling the story of the common man. I think of um, Charlie Rich's song, you know, Life Has Its Little Ups and Downs. These are songs of people who just trying to make it in America, but also troubled men, troubled stories, some who did time or sang songs for those who did. Let's hear a little bit of that. This is Johnny Cash's Folsom Prison Blues. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry. So this is another breaking boundaries. The record company did not want him to make a record at Folsom Prison, and he also did a record at San Quentin Prison. How does this play out, this kind of 
you are not as good as in country music. There's a kind of defiance. People have stories that they want to tell, and they have hard lives that they want to find some expression for that either gives them some solace or explains themselves to people or just tells a story that they think is important. Johnny Cash is like the... He enters our film in, uh, in episode four, uh, but he is a dominant force from that to the end of our film because he's a great artist. He has an interesting life, and it intersects with all these things. You, you know, I'm a writer. If I had made up the story that when he goes to sing at San Quentin Prison, that because he believes that he connects with, the, with these folks with his stories, and he derives a pleasure, if you will, out of connecting with those folks as they remind him of where, where his, his roots are, that sitting in the audience is this 20-year-old kid who's doing hard time, who then is inspired by that, whose name is Merle Haggard, who goes on to be one of the greatest songwriters in country music history. If, if I wrote that in a novel, <laughs> you know, the editor would you know, strike it out. But at its heart, at its you know, great beating heart of uh, country music is this ability to strip things down to three chords in the truth, if you want to call it that, and say something on behalf of everybody because it's universal, it's, it's, it's human, um, and um, in many instances, uh, human in a way that people tend to forget and, or just ignore. And uh, when it speaks, it speaks loudly and, and, and penetratingly. Mama's Hungry Eyes, or just called Hungry Eyes by Merle Haggard, Haggard to me yeah. is uh, a quintessential country song. It is a beautiful song, but it's all about, from the point of view of a child, in Merle's case, his father's hard-working hands trying to you know, scrape by for his family and to feed his mama's hungry eyes. Mama never had the luxury she wanted But it wasn't cause my daddy didn't try uh, It wasn't a rebuke of her father, it's just that, you know, she wanted the best for her kids, but as it says in the, in the song, we had to learn that a better class of people kept us somewhere there below. One more reason for my mama's hungry eyes. I can relate to that. Daddy praying for a better way of life But I don't recall a change of any You know, your conversation with Dwight Yoakam. He is deeply moved and sort of breaks like your voice just broke talking about a Merle Haggard song. But what is it about the way that Merle sort of paints a picture that gets us right in the heart? He's a poet. The poet of the common man, he was called. And uh, that's what poets do. They find the right words. That's uh, Hank Williams was the hillbilly Shakespeare. You know, Dolly Parton, Jolene, Loretta Lynn. Don't come home a-drinking with lovin' on your mind. That's poetry. Well, let me pick up on that idea of evolving. And in the case of Merle Haggard, it was a kind of reconciliation with himself or the ability to be redeemed. 
San Quentin. Something happened to me there. There was a time where I, I came to the fork in the road and took it, you might say. And kind of started back in the other direction, trying to make something out of myself rather than to dig myself in a deeper hole. So this is something, Dayton, that I think comes up a lot. You know, the kind of idea of, you know, we have these kind of outlaw, rambling guys, you know, Bob Wills, Hank Williams, alcoholics, womenizers, you know, got themselves into trouble, certainly. And then you, so you've got these flawed figures, but then this increasingly uh, vision of country musicians as the all-Americans, the good old boys, you know, trucks and beers and mama and, and you know, the Okie from Muskogee, the, the clean, we don't, we don't burn our draft cards, we're something else in country music. So, so what does that kind of rejection of a whole way of life mean in this music? Well, I think um, a lot of people have their own stereotypes of what they think country music is. And every time that happens, it's like a narrow silo uh, of assumption about what it is. Is it that? Sure. And it's this and it's this and it's this and it's this and it's this. It's, it's you know, a, a, a broad embrace of topics. It's a broad embrace of musical styles. In the case of, um, you know, the truck drivers and all that, I mean, uh, Willie Nelson, when he gave up on Nashville, they he had a lot of great hit songs for other people, Crazy by Patsy Cline and Nightlife by Ray Price. But he couldn't make it as uh, on his own as a singer because they kept trying to pigeonhole him, you know. He has a little too much jazz in him. His phrasing is odd. His guitar playing is a, a little different. When he got back down into Texas in the 70s, he found there um, a community of people mostly young, almost a generation younger than him, who loved his music and also the truck drivers. And so he, he was playing at places where he started his 4th of July picnics, and he said, so people could come and drink beer and find out they didn't hate each other. <laughs> you know, there are rednecks and long-haired hippies coming to his music. Because his music speaks, as he says in our film uh, at a later time, music will get through. You know, it's not a Democrat or a Republican. It's music. Uh, and it doesn't know uh, the boundaries. And so he's an outlaw. Uh, he was called part of the outlaw movement, and he said, well, everybody's got a little outlaw in them, and I sort of took it as a compliment. Um, but he's he also came out with a, an album against his label's wishes of old standards like Stardust and Georgia on my mind, I might add. Um, but the record company says, well, why are you doing that? He said, well, I, I've learned that when if I play slip a couple of these standards in to my um, concerts, that the audience loves it, the young kids think I might have written it, and the older folks recognize it for what it is and love, you know, love just hearing it again. Well, that album called Stardust stayed on the chart for like four years. Um, you know, it's we have to, you know, country music is not Beethoven, right? And it's not necessarily disco. And so there's a there is a, a necessity sort of to to have a name for something. But when it is, when it becomes constrictive, or when it when it tries to tell you that it's just one thing, then it becomes um, meaningless. And um, I think that's what we keep trying to explore in our in our series is that it it wants to reach out and 
express itself and that people respond to it when they respond to it as music and sort of set aside all these other things. We're getting a preview of the upcoming Ken Burns documentary series, Country Music, with Dayton Duncan, writer and one of the producers for the series, which launches this Sunday on GPB and PBS stations across the country. And we're listening to Willie Nelson's Georgia On My Mind as we head into a short break. But stay with us for more of the conversation and On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott with my guest Dayton Duncan, a longtime collaborator with Ken Burns and producer and writer for Country Music, an eight-part documentary series premiering on PBS and, of course, GPB this Sunday, September 15th. But we're giving you a little bit of a preview today. The last sprawling epic on country music on film was Nashville, Robert Altman's 1975 satire of country music's star-making machine, populist political tendencies, and earnest patriotism. Among a large cast of characters is Haven Hamilton, a pompadoured send-up played by Henry Gibson, here singing, We must be doing something right to last 200 years. I share our country's motto, and in God I place my trust. Dayton, we talked before the break about some really big names, Dolly, Loretta, Johnny Cash, etc. But from there, the market and the industry appears to take over during the 70s and 80s. That's my observation. You can correct me on that. But I think of that, the film Nashville, a send-up of country music sentimentality. What do people in the country music industry think of it? Well, uh, when Robert Altman's crew started doing their film Nashville in, um, in Nashville, the country music community was very excited that at last, you know, maybe they would be taken seriously and will destroy all the old stereotypes. And when the film came out, you know, it was viewed critically acclaimed as the satirical look at all of America and using the culture there in Nashville as its uh, example of uh, hypocrisy and money grubbing and uh, and also ending in in violence. And it it got critical acclaim uh, as that, as a comment on sort of mainstream America. And they hated it in Nashville because they thought, well, once again, we're being caricatured and and, uh, made fun of. But um, at that same time, country music, which always has had this debate, what is country music, right? Um, That debate is, on the one hand, continual and important, and on the other hand, it also takes place when artists are just saying, it's over here. No, it's over here. No, it's over here. And the 70s was one of those great decades for that. You had Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, and the Outlaws. You had, on the other extreme, the what was called the smooth country Paulton sound. Um, you had uh, sort of bohemian writers like uh, Towns Van Zant. Um, you had... Um, uh, Johnny Rodriguez broke through, uh, the first major Mexican-American country star. And you had a person that I think is a transformational figure in the history of country music, and, and her name is Lou Harris, who was originally a folky. She got um, brought uh, out to sing 
on a duet album, actually on a solo album of Graham Parsons. He was a guy himself who had been a folky, then converted to country music and, and helped sort of start what became known as country rock. He called himself a cosmic cowboy. <laughs> and he took her through this tutorial of Merle Haggard, the Leuven Brothers, uh, uh, all the great stars, Buck Owens and, and those folks. And after he died prematurely from alcohol and drug abuse, these albums she made in tribute to him were all these country songs, but reinterpreted by her. And she was cool, you know. She was a '70s person, and she had. She a, was a hippie. And she was a hippie, and she had a great band with her, including Rodney Crow, the Hot Band, it was called. And she just started crossed every border there was. They, you know, she opened for Elton John, and she also opened for James Taylor, and she also did things. You know, at the Grand Ole Opry, Johnny Cash once said, uh, every once in a while, country music's got to get back to Emmylou Harris. She just, <laughs> she just embraced it all. And she said, this is all great music. And it, it's not great music that you have to just repeat it. You know, each generation has to sla slavishly uh, copy it. But you, if you connect to those roots and then give it your interpretation, that's when it's at its best. And uh, she inspired not only a lot of listeners, myself included in, in that decade, but a lot of artists. Dwight Yoakam credits her as the sort of the lodestar to which he uh, gravitated to to go out to California from Kentucky. Uh, she was a great inspiration to Roseanne Cash, who, though the daughter of uh, the giant Johnny Cash, is in her own right an independent, excellent singer-songwriter that listening to Emmylou Harris and meeting her helped give her the more courage to write her songs just as much as her daddy's experiences had influenced his music. So Emmy Lou is, uh, is just, a, a, I think, um, a marvelous uh, person in the evolution of country music. And I hope one of the things that our film series does is, is to help people recognize that not only does she have an angelic voice, but she was an important person at an important time in the evolution of this great American music. She was called by Rolling Stone, country without the corn. And I, and I think the corn is where a lot of people get hung up. Certainly, um, that was my view growing up. You know, hee-haw was what country music <laughs> was. It wasn't serious and it wasn't about the songs. It was about a kind of personality that was put forward. And, and there was a kind of defiance in that personality, I think, of... George Jones and Tammy Wynette singing, We're Not the Jet Set. No, we're not the Jet Set. We're the old Chevrolet set. There's no Riviera in Festus, Missouri. We're, we're, we're common people, and we're celebrating that. You may look down on us, and it makes me think about the whole, uh, we're the ignored people, uh, we're not the elites. 
do you think there is a political stirring that accompanies country music in the way that a lot of people, let's, you know, think of election 2016. They said, you've left us out of the conversation. Well, I think that the history of country music uh, touches on that, certainly. I, I don't, I don't, uh, I think you'd be laying too much on to say that country music is, you know, creates that culture. It's an expression of it. It's an expression of, of saying, I've got something to say, listen, listen to me. Um, and that responds to just stereotypes um, about it. You know, there was a, there was a deliberate, um, by some of the marketers, effort to play to the rube, to play to the hay bales and uh, those things. And some of the musicians were happily, you know, okay, that's fine. Others resented it. As Dolly says in our film, you know, if, if you're a hillbilly, you can call yourself a hillbilly. But if you're not and the, you're using the phrase in a way that, you know, that doesn't understand us, then it's, you know, it's almost like a racial slur. Mm. And I think that's, that's been part of country music's um, evolution. And I think part of that was probably evident in 2016. It's, uh, you know, I think there is a, a, a yearning for people to ha uh, have their story told, whether it's in music or just in recognition by the people who make decisions, um, but they, while they're linked in one sense, that one doesn't cause the other, I don't think. Well, that question of authenticity has been a big part of country music. A couple of years ago, uh, Blake Shelton, he's one of the celebrity coaches on The Voice. He called classic country fans old farts and jackasses. <laughs> Truck bed loaded down with beer and a cold one in my life. And others came back, and you know, they, they, there are people like Tyler Childers, I think, of uh, Chris Stapleton, who rejects the, the auto tune being used in country music or, or synth pop being used in country music. Um, so, this fight has been going on for a long time over a genre that, as you're saying, you know, ties all things together. Is this the corruption of the business of country or, or what's going on there? You know, I, I think that those, ten, you know, those things that you just described about modern country, which we don't deal with in our film, uh, as I say, we, we end in the mid-1990s in our storytelling. But what you see um, in the stories that we tell and in the history that we cover is that, as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. Hmm. Um, and so all those tensions have have uh, been there from the start. And for every um, every artist who is old style, there are uh, artists in, in history who are saying, no, I want to move this over here and move it, move it forward and change it a, a little bit. So for for every Blake Shelton, today and every Chris Stapleton today and every Jason Isbell of today, they have their counterpoints, uh, counterparts in, in the history of country music. And so we make a mistake, I think, again, to try to confine it by what we think, what we think country music is and what we think it represents. It's an art. It's music. And there's some really bad country songs, just as there's a, a lot of bad any music genre. But at its best, and what we try to get to is its beating heart and its core, at its best, it is speaking to everybody. And it doesn't matter, uh, while it, it springs from uh, the bottom up, it talks to everybody 
from the bottom all the way up and across all racial lines, across all ethnic lines, across all gender lines. Um, and those are the songs that will endure and the artists that will be remembered. And those are ones that we spend a little more attention to those great things than we uh, than we would do of saying, and here's now here's 10 minutes about the things that, you know, the music uh, when it wasn't really very good. <laughs> well, well this know? is something that you came under criticism, under fire for, for Ken Burns' documentary on jazz, that you stopped too early. Uh, on the one hand, people complain they're, they're, they're so long, 16 and a half hours, and then you get the complaints about the things you left out. So it's a, uh, you know, so you, you should have seen the 32-hour version of country <laughs> music, and maybe some of those things um, that you that people will feel were left out. They're probably we might have had that story in uh, when we started, but we, we we are constricted by time limits and other things are telling stories. But the other point that you're making about where do you stop? As I said, the reason we stop because we're historians and we're not journalists. So if if you wanted to, if you want to say of today, you could make your best guess of who you think in country music in this example would be the person that 20 years from now you would look back on and you would say, "Oh that it was that person, wasn't it? Or it was that song that really had an impact versus just was the most popular." She still preyed upon his mind. Um, and so that's why we do what we do, because we do have to make these decisions, and we try to work as hard as we can to make ones that are justifiable and that will stand the test of time. And that is what history is. History is looking back on something. Um, that's what we do. We, we try to do it as good as we can, and if, uh, like I say, if people... Uh, complain that he, he didn't bring it up to date, we can say, well, 20 years from now, I may not be around, but somebody can do that to get those those 20 years that we're missing. Or somebody can make a, another film that would in, come to different conclusions than we have in terms of the stories that we decide to tell. Dayton Duncan, producer and writer for Country Music. The new eight-part Ken Burns documentary series premieres this Sunday, September 15th on PBS stations and, of course, on GBB-TV. This conversation is part of our September music series. You can follow along with our coverage and join in the conversation using the hashtag GPBLovesMusic. You can also find us on Twitter at OST Talk or on our Facebook group, GPB Radios on Second Thought. And tell us, what is your favorite country music song? We're going to leave you to ruminate on George Jones singing, He Stopped Loving Her Today. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Kraussman, Jessica Lowell, and Alexis Thomason. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Y'all come back and hear us again on On Second Thought. He stopped loving her today. It placed her.